Welcome to the next edition of Grid Forward Chats. I'm Bryce Yonker. Today we have with us Henry Sanderson. Henry comes to us from the other side of the pond. He's the executive director of Benchmark Mineral Intelligence and is uh, a leading analyst on electric vehicle supply chains. Uh, He's worked previously for uh, Financial Times in London, uh, Bloomberg, before that in Beijing. And I uh, learned about Henry uh, because he's a author. Um, You can't see me holding up. I know we only uh, show, show our audio, but I'm, I'm holding a book that I really enjoyed reading. It's called Volt Rush, The Winners and Losers and the Race to, uh, to Go Green. Thanks for being on with us, uh, Henry. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So maybe you can start off um, just briefly. Tell us a little bit about, about your background and what are you doing currently? Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So I've been a journalist um, for, for all of my career, um, mostly in, in China. I lived in Beijing for seven years. And then I came back to London in 2014 to, to work for Financial Times covering commodities. And that's how I got into the minerals that we need for the energy transition and became aware of, you know, the demand um, increase of, for these minerals and some of the issues with the supply chains and, and, and the problems behind that and also the geopolitical issues um, of, of China's dominance. I've always been interested in clean energy. Um, and I lived in China when, you know, we had some of the worst air pollution they've recorded. So the kind of interest came together. And that's why I wrote this book, um, which is all about, you know, the supply chains behind um, your electric vehicle um, and behind uh, clean energy that, that are more visible now. But when I started writing it, were not so not so visible. Great. Well, Henry, diving into something like a, a comprehensive publication and a book like that's a, a major endeavor. Um, when did you decide to tackle that? Um, what did that process look like? Yeah, so I decided to write the book. Um, you know, what, as I said, I became aware of um, the scale of the, the minerals we needed for the clean energy transition. And, and, and working as a journalist covering this area, um, I became very interested in in the idea of um, you know writing a book just to ex- explain to people what was going on um, and, and some of the sort of hidden uh, bringing to the fore some of the hidden uh, fact you know things behind behind the supply chain. Um, so so I guess around uh, 2015 2016 um, I had the idea for for writing the book. Um, at that time, also in the commodity markets, um, you know the sort of age of China's. Um, heavy industry boom the commodity uh, super cycle had had come to an end and, and mining companies uh, were, were becoming very conservative and uh, there were no really big deals or any of that sort of excitement um so you know i was looking around for the for the next big um you know next big theme so that's when i when i came upon this topic great so let's talk a little bit about can maybe I'll, let's, I'll call it the basics of the base of the supply chain so a lot of our community yes. that's working on the end assets that are coming to the grid I don't know that they have as much of an appreciation of, of what starts you know these whole these whole uh, capabilities so can you talk broadly about the base of the supply chain the sort of resources that are required for the energy transition and I've got a few follow-up questions on these areas I'll ask you about as well Yes, yeah, so um, you're right. So, so you know, anything before it becomes a product, um, you know, is either mined or or grown. Um, so, so if you if you if you talk about clean energy, it's it's, it's quite really um, eye opening how much um, depends on 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 you know raw materials 
um, you know, and pretty much um, every technology does. But if you if you look at batteries, which is the the one I look at, they're basically two big battery chemistries at the moment: um, lithium ion phosphate, which is called LFP, and uh, NMC nickel, uh, you know, manganese cobalt. The two big technologies that probably you and I would would find in our, our electric vehicles, and they have quite different uh, raw material requirements. So. So for LFP, which is used in energy storage and grid storage um, mostly, um, you know, lithium, um, uh, you know, phosphate and, um, uh, you know, the main materials and then uh, graphite or, or graphite silicon in, in the anode. Um, and in the other uh, technologies, nickel, cobalt, manganese, um, and again, graphite or, or silicon um, in the anode. Um, and also batteries have aluminium and, and copper um, in them as well. So, so, so if you think about, um, you know, if you look at um, underneath your electric vehicle, the, the, the size of the battery pack, um, you know, is, is, is quite significant. It's uh, not only a big part of the cost, but a big part of the weight of, of the vehicle. And then you're talking about, um, you know, we need to replace uh, fossil fuel vehicles with electric vehicles. So it's, it's, it's a huge task, so a huge amount of um, raw materials are required. And, and what what really is uh, part of the issue is something like lithium was really before this um, serving quite niche markets. So suddenly um, lithium supply has to expand quite rapidly to meet the uh, demand of, of electric vehicles and grid scale storage. So this is putting a lot of pressure um, on the market. And also nickel um, and cobalt, um, copper and aluminium. I mean, they all have other markets and other uses, but again, we see that batteries are beginning to become the main sort of driver of um, demand. Um, so it, again, that's that's um, you know that's really um, the, the demand pool. And I think you know global EV sales are really accelerated, and it's been very dominated by China. China's about sixty percent, um, you know, of all EV sales, and and, and EV sales in China are about thirty percent of new sales. So China has really been dominant in this market, but now we're seeing you know, Europe and the US um, increase. But but the scale of it, um, the scale of the challenge, as you know, um, as well as I, right, is is, is massive. Yeah. So you, you, as you said, you focus a lot of the attention on the materials required for the next generation batteries, um, the incoming capabilities of, you know, in electrified transportation. So you mentioned lithium, nickel, cobalt, um, but you didn't cover as many of the other elements required for digital transformation um, or the core assets of the grid. So, you know, copper, silicon, steel. Um, outside of the areas of, of the book, or, do you have any other um, thoughts around important dynamics that are unfolding at kind of the base of the supply chain right now? Yeah, so it's really interesting. Copper, you mentioned, I mean, EVs contain, you know, around three to four times amount of copper than um, a gasoline vehicle. And we obviously need copper for, for, for wiring, uh, for grids, uh, for, for wind turbines. So, you know, copper really is um, going to be in high demand. I do I do cover what copper in, in, in one chapter. Um, but, the, but there are there are many other um, metals and, and materials that, that are going to be needed, such as rare earth um, elements I didn't really cover. But, but rare earth permanent magnets are used in electric vehicle motors, but also wind turbines and especially offshore um, you know, here in the UK, offshore wind is um, is, a, is a growing part of our electricity mix. They um, they use rare earth permanent uh, magnets, um, so that's that's another material that's going to be needed. Uh, but if you look at solar, solar uses um, silver, 
If you look at, um, you know, fuel cells, hydrogen fuel cells, um, platinum um, is another material. So pretty much any technology um, you're looking at, we're going to need uh, materials in some some shape or form. Yeah. Maybe we can pivot over a little bit to the kind of the geopolitics and the location-based um, analysis that you have in the book. So there are a number of fascinating deep dives that you do, um, you know, in the various chapters when you're covering the different materials. Um, maybe you can highlight a couple. What what really stands out to you when you think back on on the project that you that you undertook? Is there a location or two that really kind of stands out with really interesting and important dynamics that are unfolding? Yeah, I think um, you know visiting China is always always fascinating just to see the speed at which um, you know investment happens and and also um, I think you know seeing some of these plants in China. The, the people you see working there are in lab coats um, uh, on machines. It's not it's not low level labor that it used to be in in China. Um, it's all very sophisticated. Um, but, but again, the, the the scale of these plants, um, for instance, the lithium processing plants, the the, the scale of the process, um, the energy intensity of of the process, it really brings home um, you know the challenge of of building out these supply chains. And then at the other end. Um, you know, going to Democratic Republic of Congo, seeing where the cobalt and, and copper comes from. Um, and so, you know, I went both to DRC and then saw, again, where that cobalt went to in, in China. Um, so I saw both ends of, of that supply chain. And, um, you know, I, I, again, the, the, the sense of, um, you know, the, 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 uh, the complexity of, of the supply chain, the energy intensity of it, these are big plants in China that are needed to, to process um, this material. Um, you know, and, and I think also the human impact, right, the, the people mining in the DRC, um, when, you, when you get down to that level, it's um, quite basic in terms of people going out to, to mine. Um, I mean, there aren't that many economic opportunities there. So, of course, Going out to to dig for cobalt and copper and selling it is uh, is one of the, one of the opportunities. But just seeing that um, sort of firsthand is quite eye opening, right? And you really see where the materials that we rely on come from um, at the very source. It, you highlight a number of locations that are pretty uh, significant, prominent, crucial, arguably for uh, certain global uh, material um, supply chains. And, and it's, it shocks me, maybe, maybe that was a key output of your book, um, you know, how, how locationally specific some of these uh, materials are. Um, is there anything, I mean, you, you highlighted DR Congo, is there any other places, you know, or, or certain materials that you feel like the global supply chain is really especially reliant upon um, that you just want to kind of recap again? Yeah, so it's interesting because, you know, unlike oil, um, or, you know, it's more concentrated than oil, um, you know, where we have, um, you know, over 60% of the cobalt coming from the, the DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, in terms of lithium, you know, it's really um, Australia and, um, and Chile at, at, at this moment, um, obviously Argentina and, and, and China coming up. But, um, you know, it's very, um, it's very concentrated. And then again, China really being so dominant in the processing in the processing of these minerals the production of battery materials the production of batteries um, being very dominant in all these stages so the whole supply chain from raw material to to battery is is quite concentrated and and this is really the the issue at the moment which is 
you know, how do we diversify some of these supply chains? And also geopolitically, um, you know, the West isn't so happy having China with such a dominant role. Um, but what kind of diversification are we looking for? Um, you know, what what what, what does de-risking uh, mean, which is what they talk about? Um, so, so what, what kind of supply chains are we trying to create um, in the future? But definitely we need to diversify them, right? And then I think this goes back to, you know, the basic principles. You don't want to be beholden to sort of one country or one supply chain. Um, and also from a climate change risk point of view, there's more and more risks in these supply chains. So it's absolutely critical that we we diversify. But the question then is at what cost? And, um, you know, we don't want to completely give up the economics um, of clean energy that have been, you know, the cost has been coming down and down and down, right? We don't want that to totally reverse. We're already seeing in um, sectors like wind and offshore wind that the cost increases are causing uh, big problems for businesses. Well, this wasn't something really uh, that you foresaw in the in the book itself, but it, it's too too timely to not ask. So, obviously, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has impacted global energy markets, um, Europe more so, which Europe seems to have its feet under itself a bit. But do you have any thoughts about how that ongoing situation teaches us about kind of the interdependencies and the geopolitics of of global energy ecosystems? Yeah, so, so I think, um, you know, the Russian invasion um, of Ukraine, you know, is going on um, as we speak. I think it really, um, you know, was a, was a huge problem uh, for Europe because of, because of you know, they used uh, gas um, uh, as a weapon. Uh, but I think it's accelerated the, um, you know, the determination of Europe to to move towards uh, renewable energy, to, to come up, um, to come up with, uh, you know, and it coincided with um, a lot of rising concerns about China as dominance of clean energy. So these two things have come together in quite a potent mix of, uh, you know, determination to move forward with clean energy, but also reduce reliance on on China. Um, but it is impressive, you know, how Europe, um, you know, made up for the shortfall of, of gas um, and, and survived, um, you know, what what looked like at the time quite a quite a tricky um, tricky situation. But I do think. You know the issue. Um, the issue also for Europe is is, is high energy costs. Um, you know, if we are going to build out this supply chain, uh, compete with China, we need to um, you know be competitive um, from an energy cost, um, labor cost point of view, etc. So that's that's all an issue. And and we've got you know uh, we've had uh, rising interest rates in Europe. Um, that's that's a you know that's a huge problem. Um, and as I say, we're already seeing that in, in cost increases for uh, clean energy. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe we can turn our attention on a topic that our community is very familiar with and, and I know is super adjacent to what you've been focusing on. And I'll, I'll just generally label it as federal investments in industrial policy. Um, so around the world, federal governments are actively, uh, and in some cases quite aggressively, uh, investing in advancing energy systems. And some of those are very specifically focused at expanding capacity all the way down to the base of the supply chain. Uh, what impact do you see these uh, positions and these policies having, you know, more near term? And then as we look a little bit further out, more long term? Yeah, so I think the Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S. has had a huge impact in terms of really attracting investment um, into the sectors. Not only does it provide very um, substantial, you know, tax credits um, for, for producing batteries, for producing solar, uh, green hydrogen, 
um, all sorts of things, right? Um, it also just set, sets a clear sort of policy um, agenda. And we've seen a huge amount of investment um, go into the US, right, in, in, in a really uh, short period of time. So that's very exciting. Um, I guess the next step is, uh, you know, bringing all these projects online, um, you know, making sure they're cost competitive, right? You have uh, labor issues, um, other issues, and then also can, can the policy be sustained, right? If there's, um, you know, Republican administration, et cetera, um, you know, that's, that's all a concern, I think. And I think in, in Europe, the EU, um, this is the same thing. We've seen um, new policies come out, um, again, with, with ambitious targets, but again, can they, can they actually uh, be achieved? Um, we actually need, uh, you know, more, more money, uh, more, more government support. Um, so I think it's, uh, it's trickier in Europe, um, given the sort of rules of the European Union than in the US. But, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act has been a real game changer, I think. And, and that's exactly the kind of policy that, that we needed, right, um, to, to, to supercharge this, this sector. Um, and I think, you know, it's, um, it's interesting because, um, you know, China is, um, you know, has, has been so dominant, but, um, you know, the, the West has a lot of key assets, right? It has a um, network of allied countries like Australia, which has minerals, mining country, Canada, um, again, a mining country. Uh, and then we have all the, um, you know, talent in the US and, and the incentives. So we definitely should be able to, to pull something together. Yeah. And maybe related to both, you know, things like the Inflation Reduction Act and infrastructure package uh, and the industrial policies in Europe, as well as all the things that you were looking at over the years on international global supply chains. What would your thought be on the general status of the international scene for trade and collaboration? Um, is there pressure uh, mounting, building, making that harder? Um, are we still at a place where goods are flowing reasonably um, uh, uh, seamlessly and, and we're able to get the products needed to where they need to go? What's your thoughts on that in general? Yeah, so I think we did see this more, you know, more dislocations in, in COVID, um, et cetera. I think, um, you know, what we're seeing is... Um, you know, it's interesting is that, um, you know, foreign investment in China has has really, really collapsed. And we're seeing, um, you know, as I say, whole supply chains um, moving and, and shifting around and um, attempts by um, by India as well to start building, building these um, supply chains. So I do think we're seeing we're seeing a shift in, in how global supply chains um, operate. But some some trade tensions have been relieved, right? Like China, Australia, that that situation um, has has been relieved to to, to, to some extent. Um, and obviously, uh, some of the COVID era um, disruptions have, have also sort of sort of eased out. But I, again, I think um, big concern, um, you know, to, to this supply chain is, um, you know, the interest rates and, and inflation that we've seen, you know, and a lot of companies May have fundraised at a time when interest rates were lower, um, you know, but then now they they want to fundraise again, and, and it's harder. Um, so you know, we, I think that's that's a real challenge in an inflationary environment. Can we can we build out a supply chain that um, is going to be competitive with with China, right? And China's facing a deflationary environment, so it's quite quite a different situation. Yeah, yeah. So we're cruising along. I have a couple other more miscellaneous questions yeah, sure. I wanted to to jump in with you. Um, one was on automation. So the extraction and processing of raw materials obviously has a high level of manual 
processing just baked into that, which you got to see firsthand. Um, are there elements of automation improvements that maybe you saw? I don't know that you covered them too much in the book, but are there any step changes that are going to uh, bring product together in a more efficient fashion that you're kind of seeing a, a trend in right now? Yeah, so I mean, that's the interesting thing about the places I went in China. It's it's all automated, you know. It's all it's all robots, and as I say, you don't see um, people on the production line unless it's just sort of going to check something or. Um, you know, they're in they're in the labs. Um, you know, checking the final product. So, you know, it's all it's all all automated. It's um, it, it's all robots. I guess you know we we've yet to see um, you know how AI is gonna gonna impact um, this whole sector in terms of you know companies like CATL, big battery producer, huge R and D staff. You know, can they use um, AI to find new materials, new um, new things like that? That's that's you know we have yet to yet to see, but Certainly, in the um, you know battery supply chain, um, yeah, automation I'd say is, is very high. I think um, I guess mining um, is the side where um, you know probably they traditionally have been slower to adopt um, newer technologies. So that's probably the side where uh, we're going to see more um, efficiencies and, and new technologies. Right. Well, and and then so my next one was you're an analyst, so you can predict uh, and see how close you are to those predictions, but. Trend curves for things like EV storage and other grid solutions um, are really can be very divergent, right? These are quickly uh, coming upon uh, the energy systems. Um, and so they have dramatic impacts if there's a pretty significant shift in that line further down in the supply chain. So I guess my, my general question would be if, if markets are going to come to fruition faster than maybe people expect, um, is the bottleneck the, the the raw materials, or what sort of um, thoughts do you have as far as if the demand really starts speeding up? Is the is the energy uh, supply chain kind of at the base ready ready to accommodate that? Yeah, that's right. So um, you know, probably the uh, you know the next few years um, that there is going to be enough uh, supply. But I think um, you know what what we're what we're seeing is you know further out. Um, you know, in a sort of medium term, uh, end of this decade in the 2030s, you know, that's when I think it looks like there's some um, uh, shortages because, uh, you know, we need more investment now to to, to meet meet that demand. And I think we're we're seeing we're seeing that happen where, you know, some of the big players in in lithium are investing in um, exploration assets, you know, which could be the mines of tomorrow. And we're seeing uh, we're seeing that kind of investment happen. But I think that's that's the sort of issue uh, later in this decade and, and into the 2030s. And also, um, you know, the geopolitics of it, you know, what's the relationship with, with China going to be like um, then? Um, you know, what, what, <laughs> what's going to happen to our globalized world and, and economic system, right? So that's, that's, that's a sort of unknown um, issue. But mines take a long time to come to fruition. Um, and th- that's, um, you know, whereas... You know, we've seen the demand for for EVs um, increasing and increasing, and and obviously energy storage as well. So, can can the sort of mining industry keep up, and you know, can it kind of invest and kind of develop these these new assets? That's all. Um, that's all. Um, you know, of, of of concern. And obviously, if if prices for raw materials go too high, um, you can you can impact battery costs, um, and that could be um, you know that could that could be damaging as well. So. You know this this energy transition. Um, I don't think it's going to be smooth necessarily. I think there's going to be lots of 
sort of bumps bumps in the road and we have um you know a lot of a lot of headwinds right uh, we have politics and you know here in the uk uh, debate about whether uh, you know people are actually willing to uh, you know make some sacrifices to move to re- reach the net zero target um so there are all these sort of um headwinds that need to be need to be resolved as well yeah so you mentioned energy transition and and in that um i often think about the communities and and assets that um have focused on the traditional delivery of energy for decades sometimes longer and and you had um you know really great proximity and, and case studies on some of those communities. Um, are there ways that people in places that have delivered traditional solutions of the past um, are successfully transitioning into materials and solutions that are better positioned for the future? Does Do any ideas or examples come to mind? Yeah, so there's, there's obviously lots of innovation um, going on. I think that the challenge in, in clean energy um, has always been, you know, how do you scale up these innovations how do you make them uh, cheap and, and cost-effective enough? And I think that's that's been the issue. Um, if you look back, where you know a lot of venture funding um, went into new technologies, but yet if you if you look at solar, you know it's still the same um, crystalline silicon uh, technology um, that, that's dominant, and and in batteries, lithium-ion is still dominant. But we do see um, innovations being scaled up, like sodium-ion is a new. Uh, battery technology that's being scaled up in China. Um, sodium is obviously very abundant. Um, so, you know, w- w- what's interesting uh, to me is, um, you know, can, can, can China um, innovate and, and scale up some of these, uh, you know, new technologies um, going forward? Because if anyone's going to do it, they, they, can, um, they can scale it up, right? So that's going to be interesting to see. Um, or alternatively, will we see, um, you know, breakthroughs uh, coming out in 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 lithium or other mineral extraction, like we saw the shale revolution in in oil oil and gas, right? So are we going to see um, those kind of innovations come through that will will, will really change the um, supply picture. So uh, there's a lot of innovation. There's a lot of um, focus on innovation and, and government money as well. But I think the the issue for for the West has been we've you know sometimes struggled to um, to scale up these innovations from lab to uh, mass market scale, um, you know, that's that's really um, the issue. I think that's a great transition to to our closing question. So, you know, for the transformation of our energy systems uh, and all the time you spent looking into these issues around critical materials, um, maybe where where are you concerned most as you look ahead, near term, I would say, and then on the flip side, um, you know, where are you more comfortable with the the path and the trajectory that we are on now, and maybe more optimistic about where things are, are heading. Yeah, so I guess I, I guess I'm cons- you know my biggest concern is um, you know I guess political in some sense, which is that if there are um, you know failures in in the US or Europe um, for government supported projects, you know are we going to see a, a backlash that um, derails this whole effort? Uh, and also, you know, I think um, you know the UK where I am, um, you know, we don't want. Um, you know, climate change or, or clean energy to become part of the political divide that, that we have. So it becomes, you know, something that's, um, you know, what one side of the population uh, believe in and, and others don't or used as political um, talking points. And, you know, what's what's worrying to me is we used to have a consensus in the UK about uh, reaching net zero, etc. And, you know, we don't want um, 
politicians to to break that and and divide that. So I think really in the West that's that's the issue. Do we have the um, staying power to compete with China? Right? Do we have the political uh, staying power, and can we avoid um, you know the, the backlash? And also you know there's so much um, you know fossil fuel um, you know lobbying or, 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 or you know ways that we can be manipulated um, in in the West, right? To to, uh, to 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 believe one thing or the not, and and so that's that's really my concern: is can we actually sustain this this course um, that we're on? And you know, also if there are um, bumps in the road, things like you know, if charging's not um, invested in enough, will it put people off um, electric vehicles? Because I think. It's very easy for myths to to, to grow in in society and um, uh, and for people to believe them, right? In this age, um, you know, so you know that's 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 the concern, right? We have to stay on the course um, that we've set. We have to um, somehow accelerate fast and sustain policy. Um, you know, obviously in, in democratic systems, um, that's that's really um, a concern, right? Um, you know, and, and, and there the, the could be delays, um, et cetera, or set us back on our, our, our target. But my hope, you know, we're seeing all this extreme weather at the moment. You know, that's really um, coming, um, you know, into our, you know, much closer than, than ever before. So I'm hoping that will sustain more, more will, to, um, will to proceed. Well, Henry, thank you for taking some time with us and your reflections uh, on this important topic area. Uh, for all of our listeners, Bolt Rush, go get it. It's a great read. Um, thank thanks you for so taking the time to put together your, your experiences in that publication. And thanks for taking the time to be with us on the, on the podcast. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Take care.